listening to Musings of a Shy Podcast, a Dogecoin show. I'm your host, Hero Job Shy. Episode 94. One, two, three, four, seven, eight, nine, 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 on this episode, we're going to discuss Tor. Uh, this is going to be the first part of a series of episodes discussing privacy and the subject of Tor, which has been uh, rapidly been uh, discussed in the news quite often. A lot of it has to do with uh, the number of compromises and security failures and issues when it comes to Tor, as well as some of the uh, plans and solutions that people that believe in Tor are seeking to keep toward the anonymous and private means of surfing online or discussions and keep toward tour basically in essence. Uh, but before we go on to that, we're going to discuss the news and robot news, but the news first. older article, but the reason I'm going to read it is because of the, the volume of information that was a result of the hack of Ashley Madison. Uh, so Consumerist, uh, this article is by Kate Cox, uh, very personal information for over 30 million Ashley Madison users set loose on the internet in the wake of the hack. Uh, Ashley Madison, the website for cheating, cheating cheaters who specifically wanted to go and have an affair, was hacked in July. A day later, the company said it was working to secure its users' data, and all the personal identical data has been taken down. But perhaps the company is taking after the worst habits of its member base, because that turns out not to be out to be a pack of li- dirty lies. The full data over 30 million Ashley Madison accounts is now out there in the wild. The good news, as it is, is that 30 million passwords that are part of the data dump are hashed, encrypted, which have been cracked. Uh, a lot of them have. That, however, it's a very, very small silver line in the giant ominous storm cloud of doom. The rest of the leaked data includes 36 million email addresses, including Aristex points out 15,000 from uh, .gov or .mil domains and 33 million usernames and first and last names. It gets worse for the 33 million users who now have their names and user IDs out there. The rest of their profile information went along with, with include the likes, dislikes, partnerships, status, sexual preferences, date of birth, and more. Physical addresses and phone numbers are also attached, along with the last four digits of millions of users' credit card numbers. But wait, there's more. You also get the full records of the last seven years' worth of credit card transactions that the site had, to the tune of 9.6 million records. A researcher also said he has found valid active credit card numbers in the data. In sum, this leak is very, very bad for all of Ashley Madison users. The internet now has a hold of their private secret combine where the public identities and the internet being the internet is unlikely to be kind. A lot has happened with this, and we're going to discuss in depth about Ashley Madison when it, when it comes to tour, and most importantly about privacy, because this is gonna, could, in essence, happen to anyone. Um, granted, Ashley Madison is a more of a sensitive data mining thing than versus, say, Home Depot or Target breach. But what would happen if, for example, now that Facebook is accepting credit cards for their messaging service apps, if Facebook data is breached, all that user information, um, a lot of people's information is, you know, public already, depending on their settings, but some people keep it very private. 
a lot of that could be put out there in a very uh, public manner. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's other you know data sets that are out there for medical and stuff like that. Uh, the the difference here is because of the type of information that was gathered, this could be utilized for blackmail, which has already has been done. And uh, we'll discuss this further, but it's just interesting that the type of data set is, that is, was gathered by this site, you know, the likes and dislikes, uh, the sexual preferences and stuff like that. Um, you could basically piece together all sorts of blackmail type of material, but the, you could also kind of identify uh, certain individuals even when they utilize a false name, particularly if they put their real picture on there or use a false picture. Uh, because you can get their address, their email, you can probably backtrack and find their IP address, all sorts of craziness that could have happened. Um, so there's that article. Uh, some a little bit of Dogecoin news. Uh, the 10K members of Dogecoin Group giveaway with 99 prizes worth more than $600 is over. Uh, the final resources statistics inside, uh, they had nine, 970 people have joined the giveaway. They had... Uh, 15,000 action actions have sexually been done by the participants, leading to a total of uh, 23,000 entries. Uh, viral share clicks. So they're just breaking down the fact that they, they are just very successful. If you're a gamer and you're interested in meeting up with other uh, gamers, particularly if you're a PC gamer, uh, this is a Dogecoin stream group. Uh, they have gotten bigger. They've had other giveaways as well. Uh, they also have a Facebook uh, giveaway or, or page, and they also have, um, you know, you can connect with them uh, through Steam. Uh, this is one of the uh, stronger member groups when it comes to activities that people uh, within the Dogecoin community have participated in. It has increasingly gotten uh, bigger and stronger. Uh, I expect that uh, within the coming months and stuff like that, they're already planning to doing tournaments, uh, getting uh, more involved with other people. They're asking, as of right now, uh, they are looking for donations to do a big invite your friends to the group giveaway, uh, which is the big giveaway going on right now. Um, being quite an active, I'm going to read a little bit from here. The Deem the the uh, Doge Coin Stream Group promotion idea. Looking for donations to start a big invite your friends to the group giveaway. Uh, being quite an active on Steam, I noticed a lot of groups use giveaways for big games like GTA V, Metal Gear Solid, Rocket League, and so on in combination with Invite Your Friends to the Group system, which encourages the group members to invite all their Steam friends into the group. You don't have to know a lot of a lot about Pyramid Schemes to know that this kind of giveaway can boost the amount of group members pretty good, and we should all be aware that, the, that there are more members the Dogecoin Stream group has, the better and easier it is to spread the word about our lovely coin. I'm not really into that situation where I'm willing to just to donate a $60 game for something like this, even if I really want to help the community. But looking at the past and how much money I have already spent for promoting Dogecoin, I thought to myself that it's time I will try to do it the old Dogecoin classic way. So without further ado, I'd like to ask all of uh, you for donations. Just hit me in the thread so we can get this thing started. I thought it makes sense to scale the donations. Uh, that means the more donations this gets, uh, the better the game will be that I, that I will use uh, to get the, the thing going. At least 63,000 Dogecoins is Gary's uh, mod. Uh, 113k Dogecoins, which is equivalent of 1399, uh, is a CSGO, uh, which is um, Counter-Strike. Uh, and then it has Ro Ro Rocket League, Mad Max, RK Survival Evolve, Metal Gear Solid 5, Phantom Pain, uh, GT5, Steam Edition, or Fallout 4. Currently, I'm still planning to phase and want to see how good this works out. If we don't even make it to the lowest set, 
goal, I will just tip all the donated Dogecoin back to the donors. If you manage to get enough donations, though, I'll probably use one of the current available websites where you can buy Steam games with Dogecoins like Gamer Heat or Keys for Coins to buy game uh, for the giveaway. Uh, to the gay to the Gavin Moon fellow shives. Um, uh, so it looks like, um, you know, again, this is an effort to try to grow a community and and get more gamers involved and get people more involved in Dogecoin and also also to kind of help and promote Dogecoin in itself. So if you're again, if you're interested, or you know, someone who is a PC gamer, this might be a group they want to check out. An introduction to the cypherpunk tale. Uh, it's a little kind of a primer because we're going to be talking about Tor. And Tor is one of those places that uh, kind of spun out, or the ideology of it uh, was kind of spun out, or, or I should say, not necessarily the ideology, because Tor was created by the government, um, in particular the Navy, uh, to, to have and communicate um, privately you know, secure communications globally. And then it was allowed for, you know, I guess you can say civilians are opened up to the public. But its maintenance and its expansion has very much, a lot of that ideology is very much into the whole cypherpunk movement. So here we go. This is from um, uh, Bitcoin.com. They've actually revamped themselves. And we'll talk about that because I've been, monitoring and, and watching the site um, in of itself because this is revamp, uh, but we'll go on. Introduction to the Cypherpunk Tale uh, by Jer- Jeremy Redman. In 1992, the internet became more accessible to the public. With its advancement, NSA activities kicked into full force, foreshadowing the present day activities. Using techniques to invade privacy and create a monopoly of mass data collection, the NSA's secrets have been exposed by whistleblowers, most notably former NSA employee, uh, employee Edward Snowden, has deeply exposed the NSA for forcing him to flee the U.S. Revelations brought to the table by Snowden have revealed that NSA spying has been immense, immense global and continues to evade our private lives. Prior to that turning point in 1992, a group of young software developers and visionaries stepped into the spotlight to battle against this kind of invasion, creating educational pa- papers and protocols to fight these attacks. <coughs> <coughs> The cypherpunk's ideas was born in the heart of Silicon Valley with a vision of protecting privacy and promoting liberty by using technology. A cypherpunk is an activist who uses software, protocol, and most importantly, cryptography to invoke social and political change. A few days ago, a few decades ago, the NSA and military had monopoly-like control over the field of, of Computational uh, cryptography. It wasn't until 1975 when um, Whitfield Diffie created the public key cryptography that the monopoly has broken into the eyes of many. Public key cryptography pushed from a new era of activism for the use of technology. The new form of cryptography led to the creation of private mailing lists, software to protect individuals, data houses, and, and, uh, and, and cryptocurrency. In the early 90s, a group of these activists formed the Cypherpunk mailing list to exchange information on privacy, cryptography, and online liberty. Started by Timothy May, Eric Hughes, St. Jude, and John Gilmore, the group officially started out pretty small. This group of individuals used to, to meet publicly every Saturday at a small office in the heart of Silicon Valley. Over time, the on- mail- online mailing list grew with a heavy co- contribution from the likes of Julian Assange, Adam Black, Phil Zimmerman, and Hal Finney. Uh, Hal Finney... Um, if you've heard that name before, he is the gentleman that was the first person to receive Bitcoin. Uh, he had died last year from ASL. 
Uh, Julia Shaj, of course, is from WikiLeaks. Uh, Phil Zimmerman is responsible for PGP. He's also behind Silent Circle, which we will uh, discuss uh, later on. Uh, John Gilmore, I believe, is with EFF. I'm not positive. I know one, or it could be Eric Hughes. I know one of the uh, four main founders of the Cypher uh, Punk mailing list is also uh, part of EFF, which is Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. Each and every member added value to protect online privacy in the new uh, technology economy, advancing individual methods to battle government intrusion. Uh, Tim May, the founding member of Cypherpunks, wrote many political writings explaining the role of the group to the online community. As a senior scientist of Intel, May used his spare time to write about the importance of photography as a tool to protect users' information. Uh, May created the materials such as the uh, Crypto Anarchist Manifesto, uh, the Crypto Conan, and the Crypto Anarchist Cyberspace and the Private Utopia. These essays explained the vision of May's ide- ideology and served as a preamble for things to come. Many of the spoken elements in his work uh, came to life through the throughout the following decade. Uh, May revealed in the cipher, the Crypto Anarchist Manifest in 1992, reading his work as the founding meeting at, of the cypherpunks. He said that the essay itself had manifest in 1988, and he distributed the work at the, ha- at the Hackers Conference that year. The essay described the many advances in technology that could possibly be used to thwart off the invasion of privacy by the state and its tethered in- entities. May explained that the constitutional protocols were on the verge of giving individuals and groups control over their online identities, allowing individuals to communicate and exchange anonymously, he explains. And then it goes from the, court, uh, the quote here. Um, when read today, many wonders how this wild piece of information predicted great uh, technology events such as advances in Tor, I2P, and cryptocurrency. How decades earlier, May was able to envision such advances use of technology during the early days of cyberspace. He said that, of course, the state would try to hinder such a spread of technology information by creating false protection concerns for users of the net. May cited things such as drugs and tax evasion as examples of the government's reasons for protectionism. However, May said that the state's concerns would become valid as the hope of the cyberpunk ideology was to promote these very things. Such expressions of intentionally considered unethical to some was promoted regularly by May and his group of hackers. The group was especially interested in the idea of a pure and on an unaltered privacy, money laundering, and ultimate technology disruption. Tim May and his group of crypto Robin Hooders gave life to the power of cryptography and in many in the exchange of a cryptocurrency with their words and software development. They simply spoke and gave the tools to help protect groups and individuals in the early 90s. This ideological torch was carried by later de- generations following their activisms. Uh, since 1992, the disruption and disobedience through uh, cryptography has advanced so rapidly that it is hard to imagine these people envisioned it over 20 years ago. Yet they didn't just envision the, the environment, they created the tools to implement the, this revolution. Uh, crypto anarchy is alive and well. It thrives in between, between websites and online chat rooms we visit every day. May and his band of revolutionaries has, has changed the paragraph of thought for many and created the the pirate utopias we all used to battle the tentacles of the status apparatus. Concepts like Bitcoin, Tor, and crypto, par- uh, crypto par- parties are very prevalent movements in on our online society. Marketplaces like Silk Road have proven to be invaluable to cypherpunks of this new age. When destroyed by governments, these markets appear again in mass quantities like the game of whack-a-mole. It's impossible to destroy an idea. The state tried to do this with Silk Road, shutting down its servers and arresting its employees, However, the idea and concepts have not vanished from the online community, but have grown stronger. 
May provided people with these visions of decentralized marketplace in time when Tor and Bitcoin did not exist. He told us the time has come to clip the barbed wire fence of intellectual property and it's happening. Um, there's another big quote here from Eric Kuz. Um, a spectral haunts us right now and the ideas that the early cypherpunks are being embraced daily. With his vision expressed in the early days of cyberspace, the sky appear, appears to be the limit in the technological war against the state. A new day is rising where information is spread the likes of these cypherpunk punks encompass our everyday lives. Governments cannot stop the dis dissemination of information when they try to. It only shows their corruption, corruption more. In time, decentralization will make the vision of authority so blurry that, the, that a true distributed consensus in society will shall be, we, we shall see. The future is bright. Get out those clippers. So it's a very interesting uh, article. We're going to discuss this in the series of, or I should say the cypherpunk movement more so in depth uh, when we discuss more about Tor and what's happening. I do plan on reading um, these manifestos uh, that were written by May um, so that you can listen to them for yourself in an audio format. Uh, Tim May in itself is a very controversial uh, character, particularly some of his political uh, viewpoints and stuff. He said some, you might say, very um, harmful. Uh, I want to say harmful, but he has said some very racial and uh, racial things uh, in a number of his political rants and posts and stuff like that, uh, which he has, uh, my understanding, made some apologies too. But in and of itself, he's... He's a bit, uh, you know, he's a bit out there, but true visionaries and people who do go about and actually change the world are people that are completely way out there. Alleged scammers behind Bitcoin exchange Ponzi, uh, MyCoin arrested in Taiwan. So uh, there's a little bit of an editor's note here. Uh, this article comes from InsightBitcoins.com. Uh, to be clear, MyCoin was a Ponzi scheme that fronted as a Bitcoin exchange. Additionally, it needs to be noted that MyCoin is not a MayCoin, a legal uh, Taiwanese uh, Bitcoin exchange. In February 2015, the Hong Kong Commercial Crime Bureau conducted a preliminary investigation into alleged unlawful activities that may have occurred at MyCoin, a now defunct Bitcoin exchange. The investigation revealed that 43 investors between the ages of 21 and 71 all uh, lost anywhere between 50k HK. To 15 million HK each with exchange cease aspiration. Uh, Quan Wei and Yang Fi have been charged in connection with the MyCoin fraud, which results resulted in authorities shutting down the Hong Kong, the Hong Kong based exchange in February. The two suspects allegedly held several events for MyCoin investors, convincing them to spend 1.62 million NT or $49,000 in USD for 90 bitcoins in account with MyCoin's parent company. As more information regarding the scammers' motto modus operandi rise, the more interesting the story becomes. It comes to light that the MyCoin scam resulted in millions of dollars in losses in various Asian countries where victims were duped into investing in the Bitcoin exchange due to the promise of oversized returns. Reading the text of China Times, it's become clear how victims were misled by the scammers. Uh, the modus operandi of MyCoin, uh, MyCoin has promised a 150,000% yield to investors. Even Indian investors fell for the scam as one of the aforementioned events took place in the Grand Ballroom of the Sheraton Maco Hotel in August of 2014. MyCoin also exploited the desire to get money out of China, a sentiment shared by many Chinese citizens. These people were extremely vulnerable to these kind of Ponzi schemes, and according to MyCoin documents, they scammed people paid a minimum of uh, 400k HK 
and were promised 1 million HK a year later as long as the Bitcoin value remained the same or appreciated. Despite the age-old advice of distressing things that are too good to be true, many Chinese residents, mainly from the Guangzhou and Xi'an and Shangdi and Hebei and Shenzhen uh, provinces fell to the trap. MyCoin attracted an estimated 3,000 people from Hong Kong and Shenzhen by organizing swanky conventions and promotional dinners in China, Thailand, South Korea, the Philippines, and Taiwan. In a short span of time, MyCoin uh, succeeded in drawing professionals as clients such as insurance brokers, real estate agents, and paralegals. Uh, warning call. Stay away from MyCoin-type Ponzi schemes. When Hong Kong lawmakers banned the oper operation of MyCoin, it was still a new case and not many had thought the trail Ponzi schemes would be so long. MyCoin did not actually sell its backers on trading accounts. Instead, the exchange offered a form of equity investment and described as Bitcoin contracts, where the marks were promised a 100% return within four months. The operators also offered some bonuses that include Mercedes-Benz automobiles and a cash price for successfully recruiting new participants. Interestingly, like a multi-level marketing scheme, the investors were prohibited from divesting themselves unless they brought in a new investor to replace themselves. Soon after MyCoin was busted, the authorities asked for a ban on virtual currencies. According to them, it was not simply enough to ask people to exercise caution when investing. However, rather than banning cryptocurrencies, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority urged consumers to stay vigilant and guard against unscrupulous practices in any investment activity. Now that the two main accused have been charged and arrested, the scam victims may get some relief and justice. So this is just a you know overall problem within the uh, cryptocurrency space. Uh, the difference is is that a lot of these scams are being picked up rather quickly as being frauds and are being scams. They're being detected by the crypto space, you can say ecosystem. Uh, we discussed this before in the, the the scam process in themselves, the window of them to be able to make a profit and, you know, get away with it is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, law enforcement seems to be very aggressive in coming after these scammers, even even a couple years after the fact that they have uh, fled with people's money. So they're tracking them down and going after them. So it's a good thing. Unlike the existing financial legacy systems where it seems like pulling teeth to get any kind of indictment unless there's a big, huge scandal like the Bernie Madoff uh, thing. Uh, this is good for the system. It means that when someone is scamming somebody or somebody is going off or steal someone's money, you know, they're going to be prosecuted. Uh, Oxford Dictionary adds a new definition for blockchain and miner. This article comes from Coindesk, uh, OxfordDictionaries.com, the online language resource owned by the Oxford University Press, has added a new cryptocurrency-related definition. The site outlined its latest edition in a new blog post as a list that also includes a hangry, butt dial, redditor, rage quit, and fans, among others. A blockchain, according to the site, is a noun defined as a digital ledger which transactions made in Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency are recorded chronologically chronologically and publicly. The resource also added a new definition for terms related to Bitcoin mining. As well, according to Catherine Connor Martin, head of the U.S. Dictionary for the Oxford University Press, the update definition for the noun miner includes a person who obtains units of cryptocurrency by running computer processes to solve specific mathematical problems. The verb mine has a new section as well, to obtain units of a cryptocurrency by running a computer processes to solve specific mathematical problems. The conclusion comes roughly two years after the site added Bitcoin to its list of definitions. 
OxfordDictionary.com is distinctive from the Oxford English Dictionary, and according to its publisher, where the site focuses on current language and practical usage, the Oxford English Dictionary is aimed at portraying how words and words and meanings have changed over time. So I imagine within time, you know, either Bitcoin, blockchain, or mine or miner will eventually meet get into the regular Oxford English Dictionary. But as for now, it's you know, it's on the dot com, which is kind of cool. And that is it for the, the regular news. On to robot news. Robot news. Um, I'm including an article from Medium, which was written by Chris McCain. And in this article, it's just a it's called a drone market ecosystem map. It breaks down the, the basically the drone market for the military, the commercial, and consumerism, uh, the different types and modes of drone operations. Uh, I, what I found very interesting was that there are drones for insurance and tracking safety. Safety. I thought that was odd, personally. Um, but it's interesting just to look at the different companies and the competition and the different types of drones that are being uh, put out there. So there'll be a link in the show notes for this. Um, but here's the article. After looking to both VR and IoT space, I wanted to dig in and understand the drone ecosystem and how all the various players fit together. Some caveats before we dive into the analysis. The ecosystem map is not designed to be 100% comprehensive. It's more to understand all the different spaces within drones. I'm biased towards startups in the space. If I'm missing something, tweet me. The space is developed quickly, so it takes this into consideration. Observations. Drones are hard to categorize. The drone hardwares themselves are multi-purpose and can be used as a tool for any function. I categorize them based on how each drone company talked about themselves on their homepage. So the areas under commercial. It's interesting to see a few drone companies uh, verticalized to provide the hardware, tool, software, and analysis for a specific market. For, for example, uh, Sky Features for oil and gas. Aviates is for film and photography. It's interesting to see the corporations experiment with drones, most notably in the delivery space. This includes Amazon and Alibaba, and also the existing shipment, shipping companies DHL and UPS. One report states that a Chinese shipping company called SF Express is, Express is already delivering 500 packages a day via drone. I can't tell how believable this is. Uh, there is a whole ecosystem developing around the hardware of drones, including insurance, fleet management, marketplaces, data, anal data analytics uh, for drone data, etc. Once the long-range programmable drones hit widespread adoption in the consumer and entrepreneurial sector, this could be the first inflection point. For example, the drone picture below made by uh, airborne drones can fly up to up to 90 minutes, is programmable, and has a range up to 12 miles, and can carry 17 pounds. Uh, company observations, commercial. If you're thinking about starting or going into the commercial drone market, I would pay attention to all the various sub-industries within the commercial market. I pulled out all these from the website of all the commercial drone companies on the market, and they say they serve. Sub-industries include uh, agricultural, construction, infrastructure, Oil, gas, utilities, mining, inspection, wildlife, environment, humanitarian, public safety mapping, GIS, surveying, uh, cinematography, video, uh, videographic, photography, advertising, law enforcement, and maritime uh, consumers. For various estimates, I've read it looks like DGI, 
has between a 60% and 70% drone market share within the consumer space. GGI was reported to have done around $500 million in revenue for 2014 and on track to do $1 billion sales this year. Edit. As many people pointed out, the GGI drones are widely being used in commercial applications as in the top of the list of the FAA exemptions. All of that being said, I still consider GI to be a consumer-centric company with many uh, enterprises, enterprising-centric companies can leverage for use in commercial application. Marketplace. Skycatch went from a development kit to adding data cap- capturing is now moving into Aeromaps on Demand Marketplace. They are reported to be doing very well, especially in a new market. Insurance and education. Very interesting to see the big players in insurance, AGI and State Farm, trying out drone insurance. I pay attention to Skyward. Dart Drones is one of the very few FAA-certified drone flight schools. Depending on the FAA regulations and insurance standards, these types of schools could become important. OS Deploy state Systems and Data. Drone Deploy is an operation system for deploying and controlling drones programmatically. I can see them moving into the space Skycatch is in and start providing more of the full drone image stack. I would expect many more companies in the drone data imaging space once the commercial drone sector starts to take off. Marvix drone data and air fission are just the beginning. So that's very interesting. Robots may save California wine industry from the drought. Uh, this article is from Javier Cabero. Uh, Reinterrupt your regularly scheduled series of, depre- of depressing California drought stricken agricultural news to finally bring some good news. Your favorite California pinots, zins, roses, and even that box. Carnese Chardonnay that you have a nostalgic soft spot for may have all just been spared from the terrorizing wrath of the state's scorched earth. You can thank the efforts of the USD uh, Davis Department of Vine Culture and Ecology and his Department of Mechanical Engineering for this one. They're now developing cutting-edge winemaker technologies like irrigation sensors and robots that can reduce the amount of water needed to make one gallon of precious wine. That's about a 90% improvement, by the way. While the amount of water needed to make your favorite chill glass of water, uh, whatever may not be the first thing you that you ponder while sharing a bottle with friends on a Friday evening, the reality is that it takes anywhere from four to six gallons of water to produce just one gallon of wine. After all, you have to also take into account the water used for washing the grapes and equipment and not just the water used to grow grapes. Contrary, contrary to popular belief, wine grapes are actually drought tolerant. That's interesting. The best part of all this, these technologies may be available as soon as next year. So what they are doing, uh, they are farming robots who are specifically designed to cut the excessive amount of water used to the hose of great peels off the floor and to proper drains by automatically pushing peels into the right spouts without using water. The report goes on to say that these heroic students have already tested their design and have applied it for a patent. It wasn't all cutting-edge tech at the showcase. However, the school also revealed that the three new 30-foot-tall metal tanks outside the winery have been built to collect and filter rainwater from around campus for the use in the uh, guillotine things like flushing toilets. So, basically, what they're doing is they're just using robots, basically, just to do the tasks that, you know, human hands couldn't do before, which I think is interesting and very good for, I guess you can say, agriculture. And this writer, whoever this person is, Javier, obviously wants to go on to write some kind of book of some sort. And that article. 
uh, Jason Rodriguez, will the Kibal robot evade our high, high streets? This article comes from The Guardian. For years, the Super Kibal takeaway in North, North London has, like all Kibal shops, employed a man with a big knife to slice donor meat off a rotating skewer. Despite its award, award-winning pedigree, it was named the best takeaway take in London earlier this year. Manuel Kibal Sison has given the elbow supplanted by a futuristic robot arm. The Alta donor robot, which, uh, guided by sisters, glides up and down the tower of meat, slicing off perfect cuts of lamb to, the, to be stuffed in the pita bread. Uh, salad remains optional. <laughs> the unusual piece of equipment, the first to be installed in a UK uh, kiosk shop, according to the owner and manager, Hakeem uh, Corleen, has been shipped over from Turkey, a nation that no- shows its, knows its kibas, and costs around uh, uh, 5k pounds. Gorio says that he is pleased with the investment, adding, I like it and am very happy with it. He also thinks other Giyab shops will follow his lead. If he's right, then Alawa, the Turkish company that makes the equipment, could be in, a, in for a windfall. Research by the British Kebabs Awards estimates that a total of 1.3 million kebabs are sold across Britain every day by around 17,000 shops. Ask if he's sad about abandoning the traditional method of donor slicing. Uh, Gonola says that carving donor meat is a difficult task, both hard and tiring. Given that he and his staff, including former carvers, serve somewhere in the region of 1,000 kiosks on a typical weekend, you can understand why they have all taken to the new technology. And as far as customers go, Gornia says that 99% of my customers are happy with the robot. They like that it cuts precisely and hygienically. <laughs> That's interesting. So this is another robot that is either adding to the job market or taking away the job market, depending on your perception or perspective on the whole issue. I find it very fascinating. So that's it for robot news. I guess it, this this particular robot will work next to the, the you know the hamburger robot in some restaurant in the nearby future. I imagine eventually in the nearby future you can go into a small <clears throat> self-serving place like you do for the yogurt places. And it's all just a bunch of machines, almost like a vending machine. And you just walk up and maybe there will be a person, maybe there will not be a person. And you just boop, bop, bop your order. And the whole place is going to like lit up and you're going to get your hamburger and your fries or your salad. I mean, it's going to be like catered to where there will be like a hamburger section. There will be like a health nut section. There will be like, you know, a Chinese section for Chinese food. Uh Hispanic food, tacos, maybe street taco type of thing, or a kibas type of a deal here if you're into um, Middle Eastern food. And you can literally cater your meal to the desire of what you want. For example, someone who's really into hamburgers can eat the hamburgers and doesn't have to worry about, you know, going to a seafood place because they're not into seafood, but their significant other is. Um, The significant other can get their seafood and they can eat their seafood there and that person can have their hamburger and there's not going to be so much of a worries or anything like that. Or if you have a picky kid that likes just nothing but pizza, you don't have to worry about that at at all because you're at Mickey D's and Mickey D's doesn't do pizza, but you go into this type of place and yes, they do serve pizza and everyone else can have their hamburgers. So that's it for Robot News. Um, On to the episode about Tor. Tor. Otherwise known as the unknown router, is a method and means upon which people seek to travel across the internet uh, in an anonymous fashion. It's a series of nodes and servers that are only accessed through the use of the Tor method to not only 
access the websites that are designed specifically for Tor, but to go from Tor to the ClearNet in an anonymous fashion. Um, so some things have happened um, recently with Tor uh, that has placed it under significantly more scrutiny than before. Um, it's already been understood or known that the FBI and various intelligence agencies have been actively trying to de and to make it so that Tor is not something that you could be anonymous on. Uh, it's something that was revealed through the Snowden papers that were published, um, as well as various other documents and research that have demonstrated the aggressive nature that intelligence agencies are seeking to subvert the, the entire existence and the, and the properties that are associated with Tor. So <clears throat> this article is from um, Business Insider. It's by, empty, uh, by Jeff Stone. Uh, MIT researchers have bad news for users' anonymity browser Tor. Researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have found a way to identify websites hidden with the Tor anonymity service, the most respected online anonymity service in the world, with an 88% accuracy rate. That's big and bad news for the 2.5 million or so daily Tor users around the world who rely on the service of everything from criminal activity to getting around government censorship. TOR, an acronym for the Onion Router, was developed by the U.S. military to let American intelligence sources communicate with Washington freely without the watchful eye of an adversarial government. Now, since the software has gone public, it's attracted uh, journalists, dissidents, child pornographers, and millions of other internet users who create websites within the TOR hidden service section. It's those hidden services which shield a site's IP address and other identifying information that computer scientists at MIT have unveiled. The attack works by collecting a vast amount of network data from the already known Tor hidden service in advance, assigning a digital fingerprint to each of the services in question. By following the fingerprint through the computer connection points around the world and analyzing uh, traffic patterns, the team found that the loose connections could find a hidden server's computer information 88% of the time. They did all this without breaking Tor's encryption. Our goal is to show that it's possible for a local passive adversary to de-anonymize this is the word I was trying to say earlier, uh, de-anonymize users with hidden service activities without the need to perform end-to-end -end traffic analysis, wrote MIT researcher in a new paper with the Kator uh, Computing Research Institute. We assume that the attacker is able to monitor the traffic between the user and the Tor network. The attacker's goal is to identify that a user is either operating or connected to a hidden service. In addition, the attacker then aims to identify the hidden service associated with the user. The researcher said they have been been in contact with Tor's security team, which plans to institute improved measures. So this is a big deal because one of the primary reasons that people utilize Tor is for the anonymity and for them to be able to, eighty eight percent of the time, get someone. That means they're pretty much getting everyone. I mean, if this is like a three percent chance, maybe you know we could shore things up. Uh, may it might be a best practice issue where people are not doing the best practices when it comes to being online or in the using tour but this is not the case it's and so hopefully uh the shore ups that will happen will allow for tour to still continue to be the place where people can be anonymous and without the scrutiny of the government even though it's under constant attack
So what has Tor have to say about this? Um, this article comes from the Register. Uh, it's titled, MIT Boffins Identify Tor Hidden Services with 80% uh, Accuracy. For nothing is secret, there shall not be made uh, manifest. This article is by Alexander J. Martin. And what they have to say. So this is what they have to say within this article. Uh, for a while, we have been aware that circuit finger fingerprinting is a big issue for hidden service, said David uh, Golett, a developer for the Tord project. The papers show that it's possible to do it passively, but it still requires an attacker to have a foot in the network and to gather data for a certain period of time. We are considering the countermeasures as a potential improvement to the hidden service, he added, but I think we need more concrete proof that it definitely fixes the issue. A spokesman for the trope the Tor project told the register, it is a known issue that the hidden service circuits are noticeable in certain situations, but this attack is very difficult to execute. The countermeasures described in the paper are interesting since the author claims that deploying some of them would neutralize their attack and better define against hidden ser service circuit fingerprinting attacks in general. We need more concrete proof that these measures actually fix the issue, spokesman continued. We encourage peer review research into both attacks against the defense of the Tor network. It's not the first time that traffic analysis or correlation tax have been proven to be effective against TOR. In a paper by Stephen J. Murdoch and George Danson explained the feasibility of the low-cost traffic analysis of TOR back in 2005, and the project itself continues to acknowledge attackers spying on multiple parts of the internet using sophisticated statistical techniques to track the communication patterns of many different organizations and individuals. So they're aware of the problem. They're encouraging people to seek it out and um, try to help Tor protect itself. So what else is happening with Tor? Interpol is now training police to fight crime on the dark net. Uh, we talked about a conference that was happening in the Southeast. Uh, this, is a, this is by Interpol in and of itself. Uh, the arrest, trial, and conviction of Silk Road founder Ross Ulbricht and his sentence of life in prison was a stark reminder that the 21st century policing is a different game. Uh, this article is from Gizmodo by Chris Mills. And judging by the, the, the shit show that was Silk Road investigation is one that police need to get better at. Interpol is trying to help with pre preparing police forces for online crime by offering a training course in policing the dark net. During the five-day course, officers from around the world got to play with virtual online drug marketplaces, acting as buyers and sellers, admins, to get a better understanding of how Tor and Bitcoin and two fundamentals of illegal online marketplace actually function. They also uh, got a practice of seizing and taking down websites, a popular option for law enforcement to try to shut down uh, online drug trades. Given the decidedly global nature of online crime, it probably makes sense for police forces around the world to be learning from similar playbook. But it's also worth not freaking out about online drug markets just yet. During Ulbricht's trial, it was revealed that the Silk Road was about five times smaller than the pros prosecutor's first alleged, with a total of sales of $200 million rather than the billion dollars initially quoted. Well, that's not shocking. I think that's probably more accurate. Um, it seemed kind of rather large that it was a billion dollars, but I, given the nature of the drug market, not something that was not unfeasible for them to have done. <laughs> But, um, you know, they're, they're training. The law enforcement is stepping up its game. It has to bring its A game in order to take out these different marketplaces if they choose to do so. So, 
Torrent trackers ban Windows 10 over privacy concerns. So if you're into Torrent, uh, which is something that um, operates on the, the Torrent network, but not exclusively, is also in the ClearNet. Uh, the level of Windows 10 paranoia reached new highs this week from reports suggesting that Microsoft could wipe torrents and pirated software from people's hard drives. Nonsense, of course, but all the recent privacy concerns were enough to have the operating system banned from several torrent trackers. Since the release of Windows 10 last month, many media reports have focused on the various privacy intrusions. This article comes from um, Torrent Freak by Ernesto. Uh, the Wi-Fi password sharing feature, for example, or the extensive sharing of personal data and information back to Microsoft servers, the list goes on and on. While we're the last ones to defend the policy, it is worth pointing out that many other large tech companies have similar privacy violation policies. Reading rants about Windows 10 privacy on Facebook is particularly ironic. This week, these took a turn for the worse. Slowly but steadily, reports started pouring in that Windows 10 has a built-in privacy kill switch. If you were to believe some of the reports, Microsoft would nuke all torrents downloaded from the Pirate Bay. The truth is newer, nowhere near as dystopian, though. The controversy originates from a single line in the Microsoft Service Agreement, which allows the company to download software updates and configuration changes that may, may prevent people from playing counterfeit games. The change isn't limited to Windows 10, but covers many services. Also, there is no indication this will ever be used to target third-party games, which is highly unlikely. Still, recent privacy concerns have some torrent traffic staffers worried. During the week, TF received reports informing us that several private trackers have banned Windows 10 or so or so considering doing so. The staff at ITS explained that Windows 10 is off-limits now because of the extensive amount of data it shares. That concludes connections connects to the market monitor, the brand production company, which also is involved in the U.S. copyright alert system. Unfortunately, Microsoft decided to revoke any kind of data protection and submit whatever they can gather to not only themselves, but also to others. And one of those is one of the largest anti-piracy companies called Market Monitor. Among the other things that Windows 10 sends, the contents of your local disk directly to one of their servers. Obviously, this goes way too far and is a serious threat to sites like ours, which is why we had to take, to take measures. While this may sound scary, Microsoft has been working with Micro Monitor for years already. Among other things, the company helps to keep scammers at bay. There's no evidence that any privacy-related info is being shared. Still, the connection is raising red flags with other tracker operators as well. More attackers reportedly banned Windows 10 and others, including BB and FSS, are considered to follow suit. We also found that Windows 10 would be gathering information on users' P2P use to be shared with anti-privacy group. What's particularly nasty is that apparently it sends the result of local searches to a well-known anti-piracy company directly as soon as you have one, one known P2P or scene released or in your local disk. Bam. The same sentiment is shared at FS, FSC where staff has also informed users about the threat. As we all know, Microsoft recently released Windows 10. You are as a member should know that as if the site is thinking about banning the OS from FSC. That would mean you cannot use the site with the OS installed. While a paranoid mindset is definitely not a bad thing for people in the business of managing a torrent community, banning an operation system with privacy concerns is a bit much for most, especially since many of the same issues also affect earlier versions of Windows. Luckily, the most invasive privacy concerns will be dealt with configuring Windows properly or any other operating system application on social network, for that matter. Instead of banning something outright, it may be a good idea to inform the public on specific dangers and educate them how they can be alleviated. So... Again, that's about Windows 10 and basically, um, you know, torrent sites are banning it. I, I can see this happening more and more with different type of operating systems. I imagine what would happen with uh, the gaming community if they were ever to implement that type of line into focus, particularly when it comes to mods for PCs. 
uh, not all companies are happy that uh, someone goes out there and mods their game. Even though it's become very popular, I think uh, Skyrim is one of the more popular ones. Minecraft became extremely popular and very famous and very profitable, profitable because of mods. Uh, Z-Day is a big, uh, or not Z-Day, uh, DayZ is a zombie game that was a mod of Arma 3 that came to existence because of that modification. Uh, Mozilla is beefing up Fire Firefox private browsing. Um, this is important because Firefox, Firefox is utilized by Tor as the browser to go through the Tor network. So if you want some privacy when it comes to web browsing, most browsers offer private modes that don't track the site you visit. It's not foolproof though, so Mozilla is working on a version that gives users more control. Mozilla updated private browsing actively blocks web websites elements that could be used to record your behavior across sites. The company said in blog posts, this includes elements like content, analytics, social, and other services that might be collecting data without your knowledge. With such strong settings, some sites might appear broken, but Mozilla says you can unblock sites giving you trouble. Private browsing is a pre-bed of Firefox, so it also has a control center that contains important site security and privacy controls in a single place. Mozilla is also pre-bedded testers to try out and provide feedback. Firefox is also getting an add-on verification to ensure the extensions you download won't create unwanted toolbars or buttons, collect information, change your search settings, or inject ads or malware into your devices. Add-on verification will be enforced by default in pre-beta Firefox. Uh, the pre-beta channel is reserved for developers and tech-savvy users who want to provide Mon uh, Mozilla with feedback prior to the full release. Most users should wait for the full launch. Recently, Mozilla rolled out uh, Firefox 40, which also got an update for Windows 10, as well as a new ad content. So uh, Firefox is one of those places that is, you know, big on keeping everyone's information private, um, big, strong, you know, believers in ad protection and just overall in general, just, you know, you should be able to look at what you want to look at online without it being tracked or graphed or, you know, getting unwanted ads or anything like that. Digital surveillance worse than Orwell, says UN, UN Privacy Chief. Uh, Joseph Canelli describes British oversight as a joke and says Geneva Convention for the Internet is needed. Uh, this is something that is being rolled out, uh, something that Snowden has um, backing. is called actually calling, colloquially referred to as the Snowden uh, Treaty. But I'm going to read this article because we are going to talk about that as soon as the documentation in and of itself um, is I can find a clear published view of it. But the first UN privacy chief has said the world needs a Geneva Convention style law for the internet to safeguard data and combat threat of massive clandestine digital surveillance. Speaking to the Guardian's week after his appointment as the UN special rapporteur on privacy, Joseph Canantini's described British surveillance oversight as being a joke and said the situation is worse than anything that George Orwell could have foreseen. He added that it doesn't use Facebook or Twitter and said it was regrettable that his vast numbers of people signed away their digital rights without thinking about it. Some people were complaining because they couldn't find me on Facebook, they couldn't find me on Twitter, but since I believe in privacy, I never felt the need for it. Uh, Kennedy, a professor of technology law at the University of Gorn in Netherlands and head of the Department of Information Policy and Governance at the University of Matal, said, but pointing out for concerns about the surveillance of privacy following the Edward Snowden revelations, Kanansini agreed that his notion of a new universal law and surveillance can embarrass those who may not sign up to it. 
Some people may not want to buy into it, he acknowledged, but you know if one takes the attitude that some countries will not play ball, then, for example, the chemical weapons agreement would never have come about. Kennedy came into this new post in July after a controversial spat involving the first choice candidate, uh, Kretina Nemoa Metcalf, who the Germans in particular thought might, might not be tough enough on the Americans. But for Kennedy, well known for having a mind of his own, it is not the Americans but Britain he, that he singles out as having the weakest oversight in the Western world. That is precisely one of the problems we have to tackle, that if your oversight mechanism is a joke and rather bad joke as a citizen's expense, for how long can you laugh at it off as a joke? He said proper oversight is the only way of progress and hopes more people will think about, about and vote for privacy in the UK, and that's where the political process comes in, he said, because you can laugh off the economy and the National Health Services, not in the UK election if you want to survive. The appointment of the UN Special Rapporteur on Privacy is seen as a hugely important, important because it elevates the right to privacy in the digital age to that of other human rights. As the first person in the job, the investigator will be able to set the standards for the digital right to privacy, deciding how far to push governments that want to conduct surveillance for security reasons and corporations who want to minus for our personal data. Cantina mandates its assistance when he powers to systematically review government policies and laws on interception of digital communication and collection of personal data, identify actions that intrude on privacy without compiling justification, assist governments in developing best practices to bring global surveillance under the rule of law, Further, actual private sector responsibility to respect human rights and help ensure national procedures and laws are constituted with international human rights obligations. Although Kennedy admits that his job is a complex one that is not going to be solved with a magic bullet, he says it's far more starting from scratch and believes there is at least four main areas including universal law and surveillance, tackling the business models of the big tech corporations, and defining privacy and raising awareness among the public. I would say it's impossible to achieve this achieve in three years is probably impossible to achieve even if the mandate is renewed to six years if you're trying to do too much but i don't but i do think that at least in my views of things in the field like human rights is a long-term view right and the impact must be felt in the long term in the long term so this is the process of being developed as i mentioned there is a treating going around the seeking to get all the governing you know bodies out there all the different nations to agree to some sort of kind of privacy concern for individuals and groups. And I am including an article by um, gentleman that goes by Brewster Kale. Uh, it's about looking Locking the web open, a call for a distributed web. Um, I'm going to read some of the highlights from this, but basically what it is, is it's just an advocation for, you know, privacy and the ability for people to traverse the web in and of itself and just how fragile the web and worldwide web in and of itself is. Um, over the last 25 years, millions of people have poured creative and knowledge into the worldwide web. New features have been added and dramatic policies have emerged based on the original simple design. I would like to suggest we can now build a new web on top of the existing web that secures what we want most out of an expensive communication tool without giving up its inclusiveness. I believe we can do something quite counterintuitive. We can lock the web open. One of my heroes, Larry Lesson, famously said, code is law. The way we code the web will determine the way we live online, so we need to bake our values into our code. Freedom of expression needs to be baked into our code. Privacy should be baked into our code. Universal access to all knowledge. But right now, those values are not embedded in the web. 
it turns out the World Wide Web is quite fragile. But it's huge. At the Internet Archive, we collect 1 billion pages a week. We now know that the web pages only last about 100 days on average before they change or disappear. They blink on and off in their servers. And the web is massively accessible unless you live in China. The Chinese government has blocked the Internet Archive, the New York Times, and other sites for the citizens. And other countries block their citizens' access as well every once in a while, so the web is not reliably accessible. And the web isn't private. People, corporations, countries conspire on what you're reading, and they do. We now know, thanks to Edward Snowden, that WikiLeaks readers were selected for targeting by the national security agencies and the UK's equivalent just because the organization can identify those web browsers that visit the site and identify the people likely to be using those browsers. In the library world, we now know how important it is to protect readers' privacy. Rounding people up for things that they've read has a long and dreadful history. So we need a web that's better than, than it is now in order to protect reader privacy. But the web is fun. The web is so easy to use and inviting the millions of people are putting interesting things online. In many ways, pouring a digital representation of their lives into the web. New features are being invented and added into the, tech, into the technology because one does not need permission to create a system. All in all, the openness of the web has led to, to the participation of many. We got one of the three, the three things right, but we need a web that is reliable, a web that is private while keeping the web fun. I believe in time is to take the next set, step. I believe we can now build a web reliable, private, and fun all at the same time. To get these features, we need to build a distributed web. Imagine distributed websites that are easily to set up and use as a WordPress blogs, uh, Wikimedia sites, or even fix Facebook pages, but have the properties, but have these properties, but how? First, a bit about what it meant to be a distributed system. And he goes on and talking about what a distributed system is, which is something we've discussed and talked about before. Uh, here he talks about how we can build a new distributed web. There have been many advances since the start of the web in 1992 that could be very helpful. We have computers that are a thousand times faster. We have JavaScript that allows us to run sophisticated code in the browser. So now many people can help to build it. Uh, public key encryption systems were illegal to distribute in the early 90s, but now legal so we can use them for authentication and privacy. With strong cryptography, communication can be safe in transit and can be signed so that the forgery is much more difficult. We have blockchain technology that enables Bitcoin community to have a global database with no central point of control. And we have virtual currencies such as Bitcoin, which can make micropayments work in a distributed environment. Many other projects have pushed the limits of distributed systems, give us building blocks for a distributed web. So he talks about basically embed embedding already the existing, you know, last 25 years of knowledge. Um, way to build the distributed web, an example. Uh, BitTorrent, which we talked about before, uh, please bear with me as I try to argue that there's a possible using an algorithm of existing or near existing technologies. A piece of the system could be a peer-to-peer -peer system such as BitTorrent. Storing and retrieving files in a distributed way by way has been commonplace for years with BitTorrent. While downloading custom software is not ideal, it shows that the function can be done and done for millions of people. BitTorrent is kind of magic where typing a long number that is unique identifier for a file or set of files will cause it to appear on your machine. Pieces of the desired file will come from other computers that previously retrieve these files and therefore store them on, your, on their computers. In this way, the readers of files become the servers of those files. There are millions of users of BitTorrent sharing everything from commercial movies to free software to library materials. The Internet Archive, for instance, offers petabytes of files for, to the public using the BitTorrent protocol so that users have the option to retrieve files from the Internet Archive or from other users who might be closer. Uh, using BitTorrent as a part of the distributed web to share the files is a working prototype for now. 
uh, BitTorrent Incorporated peer-to-peer powered web browser Malstorm is now an alpha release. While this browser of files, files of files can be distributed using BitTorrent, using this early version, I demonstrated that at a conference last month, a static version of my blog, BrewsterKale.org, being served by people around the net. net. So you can use something like uh, BitTorrent and Malstorm. Uh, building seamlessly on top of the existing web. One feature that could greatly easy adop- adoption could be the distributed websites work seamlessly in readers' browsers without any add-on plugins or downloads. Just click and see. This is important because software on phones, tablets, and laptops are becoming more difficult to install without the permission of a company such as Apple. Fortunately, easy to distribute JavaScript as part of a web page, and this will likely be supported for a long time because it's important to such sites as Google Docs and Google Maps. JavaScript running in users' browsers as a possible application platform is now possible and usable. I'm surprised to find that JavaScript is now powerful enough to emulate older computers in the browser. For instance, you can now run an IBM PC emulator running uh, MS-DOS 3.1 running a computer game just by clicking on a web link to go to a web page. The game Organ Trail or Prince of Persia uh, or an old arcade game are now available on the Internet Archive and can be played by millions of people. The way this works is others have made emulators of the underlying machines and program language C, and then that code cross-compiles into JavaScript. So when users go to archive.org and click to run it, it downloads the JavaScript program that boots an emulator on, of an old IBM PC or Apple II into the browser. Then it reads a floppy in the case of virtual floppy and then runs that program to emulate. Uh, distributed websites, so basically you can use JavaScript to do anything which everybody knows, but it also makes it very vulnerable because that's how JavaScript is used to distribute malware. So distributed websites that have search engines and databases. Since WordPress sites have search and database functions for selecting posts from particular months and with particular tags to be fully functional, we need our distributed websites to have these features as well. In the current web programs running on a server supporter, these features so that when the user types a few words in the search box, is sent to the server, and then the program runs on the server to create the page, the page then is transmitted back to the browser. And in distributed web, there are no servers, there are only static files that are retrieved from peer-to-peer networks. Luckily, some of these files on the website themselves can be computer-coded in the form of JavaScript. All the computation that happens in the browser is based on these files. So a lot of this is going to be like a very much browser-based web, and less of a hardware thing. And I continue on forward. Um, Ease names of distributed website using blockchain. A distributed identity it talks about um, one name here. Or a blockchain where one name could be utilized. He talks about um, the name coin earlier. Uh, Bitcoin as a means of paying for everything. Uh, and then his conclusion. In conclusion, through the last 25 years, people have poured their lives and dreams into the World Wide Web, yielding a library and communication tool that's unprecedented in scale. We can now build a stronger tool on top of the current web to offer added reliability, privacy, and fun. Our new web would be reliable because it'd be hosted in many places in multiple versions, and also people could even make money, so there would be an extra incentive to publish in a distributed web. It would, be, it would make more private because it would be more difficult to monitor who is reading a particular website. Using cryptography for the identity system makes it less related to personal identity, so there's an ability to walk away without being personally targeted. And it can be fun and is manageable and extendable. With no central entities to regulate the evolution of the distributed web, the possibilities are much broader. Fortunately, the the needed technology is now available, JavaScript, Bitcoin, 
IPFS uh, slash BitTorrent, Namecoin, and others. We don't need to wait for Apple, Microsoft, or Google to allow us to build this. What we need to do now is to bring together technologists, visionaries, and philanthropists to build such a system that has no central points of control. Building that is a truly open project could in itself be done in a distributed way, allowing many people and many projects to participate toward a shared goal of distributed web. Together, we can lock the web open. We can make openness irrevocable. We can bake the First Amendment into the code itself and for the benefit of all, and we can build this, and we can build it together. And lastly, um, a little bit about Tor and the efforts by people to do kind of start this kind of combination thing that uh, that was discussed in the article. Um, Hornet is an onion routing anonymous with direct integration. Uh, Tor has been the front runner when it comes to partially anonymizing details for the internet users. As a result, Tor has managed to gain a lot of popularity over the years, especially in the Prussian nations and been powerful meaning for journalists and dissidents. But as good as Tor is, it lacks the speed internet users have grown accustomed to over the years, which could only be its downfall. Internet users around the world want to remain semi-anonymous when transferring large chunks of data over the internet could not use Tor to do so in an efficient manner. Instead, they have to rely on VPN connections, which are less protected compared to Tor, plus logs of every VPN connection are stored on centralized servers. A new solution has been found, and the solution comes from, in the form of Hornet. Or to be precise, a Hornet white paper released earlier this week shows that there's a room to find a global balance between internet speed and user privacy. Hornet stands for a high-speed onion routing at the network layer and has potential to become the improved version of Tor. The researchers behind Hornet claim that the implementation of onion routing can move data at the speed of up to 93 gigabytes per second. Additionally, Hornet should, in theory at least, be capable of servicing a multitude of users without creating huge overhead, something Tor has been struggling with as the protocol becomes more popular. Yeah, this is something about Tor that has always been kind of the problem, is it's kind of slow, especially given the fact that uh, with high-speed internet and mobile devices and things of that nature, and the fact that more and more people are not on DSL, you know, dial-ups, they are on cable connections, or they're using Wi-Fi, uh, it's been a bit of a kind of the hindrance of people hitting that mass usage just because of the, the slowness of what's happening. Also, there's reliability with so many broken uh, onion links and stuff like that. Pages are just disappearing quite often all the time. Uh, researchers behind Hornet claim that the implementation of onion routing can move. Okay, I already talked about that. One of the main issues between Tor and Hornet is the fact that Hornet uses two different onion protocols to protect users' anonymity when making a request to the open net. Connecting to the site to not protected by the Hornet network results in a Sphinx onion pro protocol connection. Each Sphinx packet allows a source node to establish a set of symmetric keys, one for each node on the path through which packets are routed. This allows it creating the node to dynamically retrieve the embedded information, i.e. next hop, shared key, succession, expression time, while hiding the information from unauthorized third parties. I wonder if this is also protects from the whole um, exit node uh, spying that the FBI and the NSA and a lot of different other agencies are um, doing when it comes to monitoring Tor. Assuming Hornet will uh, work as explained in the white paper, this protocol could have a huge implication for Bitcoin adoption around the world. Oppressive regimes in some of the world's largest nations route internet in their own way and restrict certain websites from being accessed. Just recently, Russia restricted website access to very Bitcoin websites, a ban that could bypass by using a protocol such as uh, Hornet. 
Additionally, not all countries are too keen on free speech regarding Bitcoin either. Some governments see this as an attack on the regime and will censor any mention on Bitcoin and digital currency. Using Hornet, these blockades could be bypassed as well without giving internet speed and still protect your uh, privacy. So that is it uh, for this edition of the Tor episode. Basically, it's you know Tor has had some hiccups when it comes to people being able to see what's going on, um, being able to go after users. Uh, law enforcement is actively learning how to operate on the dark net. Uh, people are actively trying other different options when it comes to privacy, um, advocating for a stronger um, private world that you can say in connections. And there's all these different kind of solutions out there. Um, there's efforts on the part of you know the UN, UN and different smaller governments and even agencies within larger governments just to give people the privacy they're seeking. Um, and there's companies like Mozilla that advertise and advocate for privacy. So there's a strong effort and is is actually gaining some steam to create a private communication network out there without the um, back doors or government oversight out there or any type of permission. It's all being very permissionless. No one is seeking permission to do this. People are just doing it and finding ways to do it and trying to improve. Uh, but this is it for um, the show. Uh, I thank you very much for listening and to the moon. Thank you for listening to the show. You can help support the show by donating either through the show notes or directly on the website, either Dogecoin, Litecoin, or Bitcoin. The website is a new website. It's called Musings of the Shy Podcast.